Our reading for today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, beginning in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed towards the people. And they said, what have we done letting Israel leave our service? So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, when he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his armies. They overtook them, camped by the sea, by Pi-Haherath, in front of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing upon them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. But you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into a panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty 
The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. The Israelites are rather notorious for their love-hate relationship with Moses, not to mention their finicky loyalty to Yahweh. They are not so unlike those of us who sing God's praises on Sunday and worry ourselves into gloom and doom on Monday. Like us, they are practiced at coping and complaining with sarcasm. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? It is in this panicked, pregnant moment Trapped between Egyptian chariots and the raging sea, that a new nation is about to be born. For many years of my life, I have returned to this place in the sacred story for comfort and assurance. Now, as a relatively safe, mostly privileged woman that I am, it is a scene I can hardly imagine being chased down by armies of soldiers, having just barely escaped the chains of slavery, my newfound freedom, not to mention my life, now in sudden and serious jeopardy. On the other hand, feeling stuck between an oppressive past and a seemingly impossible future feels awfully familiar. Feeling overwhelmed, feeling lost, feeling betrayed by God's own promises, feeling afraid, feeling helpless, feeling stuck, feeling doomed, feeling frantic and panicked. These feelings are not foreign to me. And in that sense, I can relate to the Hebrew people stuck between an army and a hard place. I can relate to a future path that looks like a sea and not a boat in sight for me, Which is why I have long been fascinated by what Moses says to the people. Do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. What in the blue moon is Moses talking about? 
If I were there, I'd be forming a strategy. Okay, children and babies nearest the sea, able-bodied persons between them and the chariots. Who has anything on them that can be turned into a weapon or used as a shield? I need a team of people over here building a blockade of our possessions. I need the rest of you gathering rocks and heavy objects we can throw at the Egyptians and their horses. I've never had to fight in a war, thank goodness. But I do know how I tend to respond in chaos, and that is that I start creating order, forming a plan, and delegating the job so stuff gets done. I know that I respond to problems by brainstorming solutions and putting them quickly into action. I respond to things that feel out of control by doing what I can control. But Moses doesn't want me organizing the Hebrews into forces of resistance. Moses wants me to be still. He doesn't want me to fret or to plan or to get busy. He wants me still. Friends, I wonder where in your life God might be inviting you into stillness. Have you made an idol of your scurry? a necessity out of worry? Is there some segment of life where God might be calling you to stillness? When I cannot see the way out or the way ahead, I remind myself that God's imagination is bigger than mine. And there's a good chance I'm about to be surprised. I don't want to be so busy forging my own path that I miss the miracle, the opening God provides. I wonder, though, what does it really mean to be still? Be still and know that I am God, we like to quote the psalmist. I find some irony in the fact that as soon as Moses tells the people, you need only to be still. God tells Moses, tell the Israelites to move on. The combined message is be still and move on, which, frankly, I think is perfect advice. Because sacred stillness does not mean do nothing. Sacred stillness is not passive or limp. Sacred stillness is not a cop-out or a fancy-sounding excuse to disengage. Sacred stillness is not denial, avoidance, or the act of giving up. Sacred stillness is clear-eyed presence. It's an electrifying sort of stillness. It's a way of showing up that is awake to God and open to God's magic. Sacred stillness is a stillness that eventually stirs you, moves you, prompts you. If it doesn't move you, you aren't still, you're dead. For the Israelites, the stillness that moved them forward into the sea moved them forward into their fear. They had to step out. Stillness and trust were not stationary. The stillness, the reliance on God required something of them. In one Midrash tradition, they say the Israelites had to walk into the sea up to their noses in water before the waters began to part in two. Imagine that. First one foot, then the other. You're up to your ankles, the water is cold. You take a few more steps, the sea splashes against your thighs, you pause and brace yourself one more step and it feels like ice on your midriff. 
Your chest is pounding as the water reaches it. Your shoulders, your neck go under. You've got a child atop your shoulders. Water hits your chin. Instinctively, you take a big inhale in case the water covers your face. Friends, if you've had it up to here, if you are up to your noses in chaos or pain or fear, it's not too late for you. According to our sacred stories, the seas might just be about to part. The rabbi Ruth H. Sohn wrote the following poem called I Will Sing to the Lord a New Song. And the song is in the mouth of Miriam. Listen to her words. I, Miriam, stand at the sea and turn to face the desert, stretching endless and still. My eyes are dazzled, the sky brilliant blue, sunburnt sands unyielding white. My hands turn to dove wings. My arms reach for the sky, and I want to sing the song rising inside me. My mouth open, I stop. Where are the words? Where the melody? In moment of panic, my eyes go blind. Can I take a step without knowing a destination? Will I falter? Will I fall? Will the ground sink away from under me? The song still unformed. How can I sing? To take the first step, to sing a new song, is to close one's eyes and dive into unknown waters. For a moment, knowing nothing, risking all, But then to discover the waters are friendly, the ground is firm, and the song, the song rises again. Out of my mouth come words lifting the wind. And I hear for the first the song that has been in my heart, silent, unknown, even to me. In the ancient world, the sea represented chaos. And the Israelites are called by God to walk right out into the middle of that chaos. They do not know the way forward. They cannot see where this is going. No one has been this way before. No one can tell them what is coming next. This is how freedom feels, and they aren't so sure they like it. They must step into the unknown. They must enter the chaos without trying to control it, not knowing where these steps will lead them or if they will be safe. Interestingly, the whole story of the Bible begins with chaos in the book of Genesis. As it is written, the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. What was to come next was unknown, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters about to create something new. And into that primordial chaos, God spoke, let there be a vault between the water to separate water from water, and eventually dry land appeared. God called it good, and we call it an act of creation. 
And then in the book of Exodus, as Moses stretched out his hand over the surface of the deep waters, the water separated from the water and dry land appeared in the middle. God, Moses called it, God fights for you. God called it glory, and God's people called it the great exodus out of Egypt. We also call it a new creation. For they were no longer slaves, they were free. They were no longer bound by fear, they were walking in the light of God. They were no longer lost, they were found. No longer trapped, they were uncaged. No longer oppressed, they were saved. God had created a new identity. And by walking out into the chaos with the God of creation, the Israelites participated in this stunning act of recreation. Not fully knowing what was to come. They took a risk marked by stillness and by seawater, marked by the resolute determination to leave that which had confined and constricted them, even if it took them right into the heart of the sea, even if it meant uncertainty, even if it meant labor pains. As Rabbi Rachel Berenblot writes, if you wait, until you feel fully ready, you may never take the leap at all. And infinity is calling you forth out of this birth canal and into the future's wide expanse. Beloved of God, may we put one foot in front of the other until we all reach freedom together. I am reminded of the song, Lead with Love by Melanie Damore, which I first learned at a protest in front of the Waco courthouse when Chris Cervantes, pastor of Waco's UU congregation, led us and we sang this together. You gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Don't give up hope. You're not alone. Don't you give up. Keep moving on. You got to put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Lift up your eyes. Don't you despair. Look up ahead. The path is there. You got to put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. I know you're scared, and I'm scared too, but here I am, right next to you. You got to put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Lead with love. Beloved, let us take heart in knowing that we walk out into the chaos, not alone, but together. So take a deep breath. Be still. Soak up God's goodness. Take comfort in the communion of saints. And now move. 
Walk with us in the light of God and don't look back. Your chains are behind you. Your future awaits you. The waters are parting. It's time for new birth. Do you hear the sound of the rushing wind moving the seas? This is the sound of God creating, of God eliminating barriers, of the sound of God calling you forward. Together, let us move. Amen.